most people in Silicon Valley, you know, they have a hammer and everything is a nail and that hammer is tools and they're going to build a tool for everything. And they the mindset is pure software. AI is going to do everything. Humans are irrelevant. Uh, humans aren't even going to exist in the future. Welcome to 20 Minute Leaders. Just sit back, relax and learn from the leaders of today. It's a journey. Each one is different, unique, inspiring. Let's get started. This episode is powered by Jay Ventures, a community-driven VC fund in Silicon Valley and is sponsored by Hillel Stanford, Upwest, and Hippo Insurance. Welcome to episode 256. Our guest is Francis Pedraza, Chief Executive Officer of Invisible Technologies. Francis leads a team of 300 people and has raised $6 million in capital to build Invisible, a disruptive work automation company that provides custom operation support to scaling businesses. Previously, Francis raised $2.6 million from top investors to build Everest, a social network based on what you do, not who you know. He worked briefly in consulting and at Google after studying history at Cornell. People who've worked with Francis say his strategy comes from clear, deep thinking, that he excels at building models, communicating vision, and motivating his team. Most importantly, he's refreshingly honest about success, failures, and his learnings along the way. By the time he dies, he hopes to have read all the Penguin classics. Francis Pedraza, thank you so much for joining on 20 Minute Leaders. Thanks for having me, Michael. It's, it's a pleasure to have you. We actually met for the first time seven years ago. You came to speak to our uh, summer class at MIT LaunchX. It was about Everest, uh, which I know that it's you know a long time back for you now with, with all the different things that you've done since then. But, but thank you for being such a source of inspiration for us back then. It was really fantastic. Thanks for remembering and for reaching out. Of course, of course. I'm, I'm really excited to have you here. Francis, I'm not going to do it justice to, to go over, over the, the incredible bio because you've actually had a pretty incredible upbringing, a pretty global one, but, but all sorts of diverse activities. I'd love to just spend the first few minutes going a little bit over your journey. Who are you? What are your passions? And that, I think that that will be a really good leeway into the things you're doing today and, and some source of inspiration for, for young entrepreneurs like myself. My mother grew up in Iran and came to the United States before the revolution, but when the revolution happened, her world changed. And um, uh, she um, had finished her undergrad, but she dropped out of graduate school and became an entrepreneur and uh, worked really, really hard to um, to succeed and um, and did. And then when she had me, she she sold her company and um, you know focused on raising me. Uh, my father grew up around the world. Um, his father worked for Procter and Gamble and other uh, American companies, so he spent some time growing up in places like Japan and the Philippines and Venezuela. And um, and so, you know, I think I got the immigrant uh, value set, which is you know, a lot of uh, hustle and determination and hard work and a sense of, um, I think, patriotism for the United States. That you know, this is a place where. Um, dreams can happen and you can, you're, you're in a free country, you have property rights, uh, rule of law, um, and uh, you can build something here um, and, uh, and express your potential. And, um, and so that was my upbringing and my life changed. Uh, you know, I was pretty frustrated in both public and private schools for a variety of reasons until I discovered this incredible um, internet entrepreneur who was teaching hundreds of students on Skype uh, Zoom did not exist back then, uh, but he happened to be a local, and he was teaching them a five-year course in the great books of Western civilization. And uh, you know, the first book we studied was Homer's Iliad, and then the next was the Odyssey, and then we went on to 
you know, read many of the ancient Greeks and the Romans and then the medieval scholastics, Renaissance and Enlightenment, you know, um, and moderns in a number of subjects and reading the original sources, writing about them, debating them, discussing them. And so I developed this like, you know, um, passion for the humanities. And uh, I, um, people ask me, how, how did you go from that to starting a company? Um, and um, I, uh, um, my first company was called Everest. It was, you remember it. It was an iPhone app to help people achieve personal goals. And, um, and I thought that, you know, Steve Jobs had his metaphor that technology could be a bicycle for the human mind, you know, that it would almost be like an Iron Man suit. Like we, we could express our potential with these tools uh, at, a, at a pace that we'd never been able to before. You could move at the speed of thought. And, uh, and then we sort of live in this dystopian reality where, uh, you know, that T-shirt that has like, you know, the ape and then a homo sapiens standing tall and then humans behind a laptop and we look like an ape again. It's like we live in this dystopian reality where it feels like we're slaves to our devices instead of, you know, uh, the other, you know, the other way around where, where these tech, the technologies are empowering us. And like, why is that? And so uh, with Everest, I was trying to build a social network except around doing things instead of around who you know, and you'd have all your goals in the app. And, um, and I, I thought that, you know, we could live up to that Da Vinci and dream, have a new renaissance and, and have people uh, pursue their, their full potential and have technology actually help. Uh, but the company failed, the app failed. Uh, and it was a very humbling sort of Icarus experience where, um, uh, I had to learn a number of lessons, um, both about how to build a great product, how to build a great business, um, and uh, and and it, but it also made me rethink some of the fundamental some of the fundamentals. Um, and with Invisible, my current company, I've tried not to compromise on the uh, the um, the vision. I think same vision, uh, just different business model, different mission, and uh, and I've been trying to apply the learnings in a very very different. Uh, to, to solve a very, very different problem, which is industrializing knowledge work. Um, so before so we yeah, go into that, my, I have to go back story. a little bit and, and understand about, you know, that Icarus-like experience, because inevitably, you know, uh, almost all entrepreneurs are going to fail multiple times until they get to their success. And, and I'd love to to focus a little bit on this Everest story. I remember when you came to to speak to us at America, I remember how we all looked at how we all looked at, at this at this amazing product that you're building and, and you know the charisma and, and the vision and, and we all bought into it immediately. We knew this was going to be a major success. We loved it. And you have to understand, Francis, that this is a bunch of you know 16, 17 year olds entrepreneur wannabes that they are getting so excited and, and are buying into this 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 product. And and that for, I, I need to have this closure to understand what what happened there and how, why why do you call this an Icarus like experience and what what lessons really do translate now to your next venture? Yeah, um, it was a beautiful product. Uh, you know, Apple featured it many times. Uh, I think the design community recognized the work that our designers had done, um, and um, you know, uh, it, it was. Before Facebook had an iPhone app, you remember when they were they Facebook thought their corporate strategy for a few years was we were going to be web web only um, until they realized that it was a mistake. You know, uh, it was the early days of the App Store, and, um, and we had nearly half a million people use it. Um, and their initial experience with Everest was kind of this, you know, euphoric uh, experience where you'd be like, wow, I could, I could put all my goals and dreams into the app. I want to go to Italy. I want to look like Daniel Craig in a bathing suit. I want to run a marathon. I want to buy a house, you know, all the things you just fantasize almost, you know, that part was easy. 
But where the business failed is that three, four, five, six months later, people would stop making progress on their goals. You know, we, it, was tr- it was almost like Instagram for your goals, where you could post photos and videos, but also complete steps like a checklist and, and make progress. And the discipline required was too high. So our business model ended up looking like a gym. You know, gyms don't make money when you get fit. Gyms make money when you want to get fit. They divorce monetization from retention. And that was a key principle that we'd missed. And, uh, and you know, we thought we were going to be have a business model that looked like Facebook. But basically, that business model is selling dopamine like a drug and uh, like a digital cigarette. And it's, it doesn't really require effort or follow through. And so, you know, oops, um, uh, beginner's mistake. And that was the Icarus uh, moment. So fast forward to today. Tell me a little bit about the insights of the industry and the market, even before we get to the actual product, because, because you have some really fascinating insights into, into where we're headed as a global economy and the workforce. And, and, and that's leading into, into what you're working on today. So, so I'd love to really get into your mind and understand the motivation behind what you're doing and, and take a, taking a little bit of a leap forward into what's going to happen in the next few decades. Yeah, I'll start by describing what Invisible is, and then I'll, I'll uh, share some, um, uh, some predictions about the future. Um, so uh, we're, you know, every company has complex and custom processes, um, and they're very difficult to automate, even if you know about all the latest automation tools, even if you're aware of robotic process automation, RPA tools, or workflow or no-code automation tools. Um, or you're aware of the relevant, you know, software point solutions for the particular function you're trying to automate, say it's sales or hiring or marketing, um, or an industry specific, you know, workflow you're trying to build. Um, there are all these tools, um, you know, there's an app for everything. Why isn't everything perfect yet? And the answer is that when you try to automate your process, you know, any one tool might help you automate 5, 10, 15% of it but you can't get the end-to-end solution you need to run your business tomorrow. So what do you do? You either do the rest of it in-house manually, or you outsource it to a traditional outsourcing company, a business process outsourcer, a BPO. And BPOs are like law firms. Their incentive is to bill you as many hours as possible. Uh, They're selling labor. Um, They don't have an incentive to automate on their side. Um, so Invisible is combining outsourcing and automation for the first time, um, and we call it work sharing. And our technology is a digital assembly line, um, and it has two layers. The first is you know, we coordinate 280 workers in 35 countries around the world who can log into secure virtual desktops and follow step-by-step instructions to do the manual portions of the work. And then the second layer is that you know, we break down these custom processes into standard steps. We think of it like sequencing the corporate process genome, and then we will automate those steps over time and they become reusable. And our business model is a win-win. As we automate your process, uh, your unit price goes down and our margins go up. So it's a win-win. Um, we have an incentive to automate and you see your prices drop. And our inspiration for all this was from what Henry Ford did to manufacturing in the early 20th century. Every, you know, this is like pre-World War I. Um, I mean, the whole story of Ford from like 1908 to say 1960 is fascinating. Um, but every year, the quality of their cars improved 
the price decreased, their revenue increased, their margins increased, and the amount that they paid their workers increased. These things are in trade-off relationships. This shouldn't happen. And it only happens through the economic miracle of productivity gains, which create deflation. And deflation is good. I, I call it the deflationary gospel of capitalism, better, faster, cheaper, better, faster, cheaper. And um, I think that we're at a stage where, you know, the, the mission of the company with Invisible is industrializing knowledge work. It's not automating knowledge work, it's industrializing it. And, um, and it, it, it implies a more nuanced view of automation. And this is what I'd like to communicate to your audience. Most people in Silicon Valley, you know, they have a hammer and everything is a nail. And that hammer is tools and they're gonna build a tool for everything. And the mindset is pure software, AI is gonna do everything, humans are irrelevant, uh, humans aren't even gonna exist in the future, you know, uh, 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 Ultron, Ultron is coming, you know? <laughs> and, and I think this is ridiculous. And I think this is where some of the liberal arts background kicks in. I think that, you know, um, I think in many times in our history, we've always thought we're at an exponential curve and it didn't end up happening. Uh, things happen quite differently, you know? Um, if you read Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath, for example, with the tractors coming and automating agriculture, you know, um, arguably the productivity gains of that era were greater than the ones that we're experiencing today. So um, the, uh, this is what I think is likely to happen. I'll speak in very broad statistical terms. There are, you know, just uh, a pop quiz for your audience. How many, there are 8 billion people on the planet. How many how many people play video games? Think about it. Pick two billion. Pick your answer in your head. <laughs> three billion, three to four billion. Um, and uh, and then how many people do knowledge work, like make their livelihood on a computer in some way? One billion. Ah, uh, you, you you did your homework. Um, exactly. Um, so there are one third to one quarter as many uh, knowledge workers as there are video gamers. Now, um, I, I'm going to attribute this to uh, Kathy Wood at ARK Invest, whose research I follow closely. But basically, video gaming is like a sort of onboarding. It's training for the world's future knowledge workers. And if you think about what's going to happen over the course of our lifetime, um, you know, do we think there are going to be less than a billion knowledge workers by the time we die or more than a billion knowledge workers? And it just seems sort of obvious. I'll, 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 I'll sort of ask the audience to grant it to me as, a, an, as a, a premise or an axiom or an assumption. I could defend it, but I just think it's so sort of, sort of obvious on its face that there are going to be many, many more knowledge workers. It doesn't make sense that one out of every eight people work on the Internet. And seven out of every eight people work in the physical world. The digital world is becoming a, you know, more and more part of our, our, everything that we do. Um, every industry is, you know, basically becoming digitized. So, um, uh, I think there are complementary trends in robotics, you know, but I think that basically in our lifetime we're going to have, you know, up to four billion knowledge workers, maybe more. Um, so, so think about what that means in terms of automation. If we were actually going to automate, you know, even 50% of uh, knowledge work, then we would go from a billion knowledge workers to 500 million knowledge workers in our lifetime. And 500 million other people would have to either be unemployed or find some physical work to do. 
But I think the opposite is going to occur. I think what we're going to experience is net negative automation. Um, that even and, and it doesn't mean we're not going to automate. We're going to automate a lot. But um, I think that the key economic principle is work can be created faster than it can be destroyed. And we can destroy it pretty fast. We can industrialize it and automate it and build all these tools pretty fast, but not as quickly as we can create it. And I think that you know we're going to be in a sort of dialectic where humans are doing a thing and then computers learn how to do that thing. And then humans do another thing, like a new trick uh, that we then teach the robots. And then we're going to keep doing that dialectic for a lot longer than people think. And, uh, and I think that um, you want to design your business model around that, or at least our business model has been designed around that. I think that those are going to be the really interesting opportunities, not necessarily the, you know, selling pure, pure SaaS, pure tools. Francis, why do you care so much about this? Why? I mean, I saw how much you cared about Everest. I saw that passion there. I'm seeing the passion now. I'm feeling, I'm feeling like as if I'm back in that MIT class in 2013. Why do you care so much about this stuff? Because the future doesn't necessarily, I mean, almost by definition, should be very different than the past and, and presumably better. Um, and uh, I think one way of thinking about it is, um, you know, if you saw a human being that was seven feet tall, you'd be like, wow, that person's pretty tall. If you saw a human being that was eight feet tall, you'd be like, are you in the Guinness Book of World Records? You know, like you're, you're, you're like three standard deviations tall. If you saw a human being that was 70 feet tall, you'd call the military. It's an alien. It's not a human anymore. It's like, you know, it's, it's Godzilla. It's a giant. You know, there are just not 80 foot tall humans. But that's a metaphor for what is possible with productivity gains. Um, and uh, I think that, uh, you know, the mindset of Silicon Valley has been the Turing test, which is when can computers do all the things that humans can do so that we can't tell. And I think that that's the wrong test for a number of reasons. I think a more interesting test is the Da Vinci test, which is, I think, Steve Jobs' original intent, which is, um, you know, in the 21st century, when will the average person be more productive than the most productive person in the 15th century? And uh, I think that, you know, in sort of a one-on-one um, -on -one, uh, productivity test, uh, da Vinci with his piece of paper would school uh, any millennial with their laptop and iPhone. And uh, I think that that's the embarrassing thing, that, that we have all this, all this information and all these tools, and yet we're, we're spending so much of our time not being creative and not being strategic. So, um, you know, on, I think part of my message is, is, is deeply optimistic. I, like, I think I really believe in, in, in the, the good that humans are capable of. Um, but part of it is like a, a real um, reprimand in a sense, like an exhortation. Like we, uh, you know, Harvard said that, you know, uh, up to 50 percent, 41 percent of the average knowledge worker's time is spent doing work that is repetitive. And I think we just did not get the education and the opportunities that we have. And we do not live in this like incredible era in order to spend half of our time doing uh, irrelevant, you know, doing, doing work that isn't our isn't our highest contribution right and we should have a certain urgency around um you know uh solving problems building you know creating things and i think that you you know uh peter Thiel peter Thiel has a i think has the right philosophy the right pessimism in his his basic message which is that like you know the iphone is new our digital devices are new but when you walk around our cities they still feel like they're in the 20th century why is that 
you know, um, and I think that that uh, there are, you know, Kathy Wood at ARK Invest talks about five technology platforms that are disrupting pretty much have the potential to disrupt every aspect of our society. You know, I think the five are, I'm going to hope I get this right, you know, fintech and blockchain, uh, robotics and um, industrial automation, uh, AI and automation, which Invisible's in, sort of software automation, uh, enterprise tools. Um, uh, gen the genomic revolution, everything is happening with CRISPR and gene editing. Um, and uh, um, everything that's happening with uh, autonomous vehicles. I think those are the five. Um, but uh, the the reason I list them out is that there's, there's you know, this is such an exciting time to be alive. Um, but we kind of have to have a fire, you know, fire uh, about it. You know, um, uh, what's what's the phrase? Light a fire under your ass. I can definitely feel the fire, the passion, the urgency. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting so much inspiration from the Francis before we end. You have to tell me the Peter Thiel story. You told it to me seven years ago back at MIT launch with Everest. <laughs> and I need the short version now for the audience because it'll be just fascinating if you feel comfortable with it, of course. Sure. Um, so, I, yeah, I, he... he... Uh, is one of the people that I look up to most still to this day. Um, I think he's an intellectual giant. And um, I was, I just graduated from college and I, I was starting Everest and I had some people interested in investing, but hadn't been able to make a breakthrough there. And I met someone at an airport, you know, uh, uh, right when sort of pretty much uh, I was thinking about quitting and, and I was working on the, the designs for the app. Um, and, uh, and somebody looked over my shoulder and saw the designs and then I asked me some questions and I answered them and I told them about the idea and, and they said, would you like to raise money? And I said, yes. And they said, from who? I said, well, you know, from who angels or VCs? And I said, angels, but specifically, um, you know, I, Peter Thiel. And he's like, well, I actually happen to go to Stanford with Peter and, and I can, I can introduce you. And, um, I spent, you know, half an hour tops talking to Peter, telling him about it. And he said, well, send me some, some materials. And then I just, I like wrote a 50 page business plan and I, uh, I, I, we, Everest created one of the first web-based pitch decks and we released it right around Christmas and didn't hear from him. And then New Year's Eve, sure, I'm in for 50K. And then everyone else came in and, you know, we, we raised 2.6 million and did this like journey for three or four years. Um, and, um, uh, it was, it was a lucky break. Um, and, um, uh, but something I'm, I think I'm always going to be grateful for. And, and, um, I think there's still, I think it's a good, it's a good example of some magic, you know, um, there are certain things like you generally, you should operate with the assumption that you, every single win, you have to fully earn it. Um, and, uh, you know, but as I look back over my career, there have been a number of people that have given me favor in key moments. And those, those were, those were fortunate. Um, fortunate circumstances. I'm very grateful for them, uh, and I think I think that's part of what made Silicon Valley great. Uh, and I think it's still there. Francis, I, I love it. Thank you uh, for sharing this story. Thank you for sharing all the other stories. This was just inspiring to to listen to again, and uh, you know, with with the new insights and 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 I can't wait to keep following your journey and continue getting inspired. So thank you for everything that you're doing, uh, both to to me, the listeners, but also to humanity. When with all the different products that you're building, before we leave, I have to ask you the most important question, which is three words that you would use to describe yourself. And I know that I'm already keeping you late, so thank you for being generous with your time. Yeah, iconoclast, classicist, and amateur.
uh, iconoclast because uh, I tend to uh, go against the norms, even when the norms are aesthetic. I think it has, you know, contrarian is a word we're familiar with, but iconoclasm has a a sort of aesthetic connotation. And sometimes being a contrarian kind of, it's it's actually unpopular and weird and even can look ugly. And it's like, what are you doing? Like, it's a weirdo. Uh, And I think you have to embrace that. And then um, uh, classicist, because I think that which is ancient is often futuristic. They're the things that don't change that you can learn the most from. And I think reading original sources in general is good. And particularly when it comes to books, I love reading books by dead people. And then amateur, because um, uh, in, in the old word, amatore, uh, you know, you have to have a certain love for, uh, you know, trying new things and being like a child and making, making mistakes. So I, I have many things that I do that I'm not an expert in by any stretch of the imagination. Like I love to paint. I love to, um, uh, learn about subjects I, I, I know very little about. Like I was reading a bunch of white papers about um, autonomous vehicles. I'm just totally out of my depth, but hey, you know, I think that, that, that helps make you well-rounded. And I think that um, for a couple hundred years, everyone's been trying to become more specialized. But I think going back to the Renaissance idea of being the polymath uh, and being versatile is a better way to go. But to do that, you have to embrace the identity of an amateur. Francis, thank you so, so much. This was wonderful. Uh, Stay safe and stay healthy. Thank you again. Cheers, Michael.